Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit is rampant. Bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Welcome back to The Bullshit Filter, Ray, episode 14. Hello. I have to ask, it sounds like somewhere in that recording you got Christian Bale to pull a Batman and go, bullshit is everywhere, or yeah, something I, like that. I could be wrong. Yeah, no, I did. I got him in. He came over. We had a stogie. It was great. It was good fun. <laughs> good. Good. Anyway. So last time we were talking about uh, Qatar and uh, some of the uh, long history of um, Qatar and pissing off all of their neighbors. I want to get back to what's been going on in the uh, civil war in uh, Syria. So in the last episode, we mentioned that around about the end of March, a month or so uh, after the protests had started, Assad accepted the resignation of the cabinet, which was largely Mm -hmm. symbolic, and gave gave his first speech and basically blamed (laughs) outside forces for what was going on, including Al Jazeera, which was the reason for my little detour into Qatar. Right. Now, uh, at the same time, towards the end of March, hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions of people, according to some reports, attended pro-government rallies around Syria. I, I assume they weren't supporting the torture of little children. <laughs> yes, I, uh, well, I assume so, yes. Okay. Um, And it's important to understand that Assad, uh, for a very long time after the civil war started, and quite possibly even still today, enjoys a lot of support in Syria. Mm -hmm. Because we have to remember that um, there is a substantial amount of the population, particularly the the Alawites, the Christians, the Druze to a lesser extent, Mm that um, are concerned that if the Assads go and the Sunni take over, they're going to get as oppressed as fuck. Yeah. As has happened to them, you know, throughout their entire history in the region. So, uh, and, and the Shia, of course, I should have added in there. So the entire population wasn't against Assad at this point. He had a a huge amount of support. Maybe they didn't like the Assads. Maybe they don't like the regime. Even, you know, I don't think it's um, necessarily true that even the Alawites in Syria all like the Assad regime just because they're Alawites. Right. Um, He's your leader. But he was protecting the Alawites and the other minorities from the majority. Uh, Hmm? I'm sorry. I was just going to add that. Yeah. So there, there were people that were supporting him. There, there were reports of uh, uh, hundreds of cars in Damascus with young men. You would think would you know roughly terrorist age or whatever you would want to think of them uh, hooligans. Uh, hundreds, hundreds of cars with young men. You know, with giant posters of President Assad. They're they're carrying the big flag uh, of of uh, Syria. They're in the main square in Damascus and they're beeping horns and driving around. And they're you know they're showing their loyalty for him. So you're absolutely right. There are people whether it's 
self-centered reason, or maybe not, but he still did have a lot of supporters at this point who were publicly willing to demonstrate to everyone else uh, that they were behind their leader. And of course, so this is early 2011, they just Mm -hmm. had to look at Iraq and what happened in Iraq after Saddam was removed by the Americans. Mm -hmm. I mean... Didn't turn out all fucking unicorns and rainbows in Iraq when they got rid of Saddam, right? Oh, God, no, not even close. Now, Iraq, of course, was the opposite of Syria. It was uh, a a Sunni country. Uh, Sorry, it was uh, a Shia country. Mm -hmm. Saddam Saddam was a Sunni in a majority Shia country who took over when he was deposed, whereas Syria is a Sunni-majority country with an Alawite slash, you know, fake Shia Shia. uh, in control. Um, But similar sort of um, tensions and similar sort of dynamic, just the the roles are reversed. Um, And as we'll see, something similar happened in Libya after Gaddafi was removed uh, a little bit later on in 2011. But in both cases, when that strongman was removed, the situation, the outcome was the same. It wasn't rainbows and fucking unicorns. It was chaos, murder, death, blood in the streets, and the the destruction of the economy and all of those sorts of things that are just as important. Exactly. As we've talked about endlessly on our Augusta show, um, most people really what they want is just to get up in the morning, give their family a kiss on the cheek, have a breakfast, go to work, do an honest day's work, work for a good, right. you know, honest day's pay, come home, fuck your wife or your husband, you know, play with your kids, uh, get them an education, watch some TV, read a book, go play some sport, go to the theater, have some entertainment, go to sleep, yeah. repeat. That's all most of us want. We don't give a fuck about who's in power, who's up who, right. who's who's the richest up. guy. Yeah. Just let us live our fucking lives in peace and harmony and, uh, you know, have some fulfillment, be able to have a hobby, read a book, um, yeah. play some we chess. Yeah, we all can't be Alexanders. We're not all Einsteins. We're not, you know, whatever, people who are going to change the world. We're, you know, we're the cogs in the machine. Just let us live our lives. Give us some some time so we can do what we enjoy and uh, leave us the fuck alone. And we'll we'll vote for you over and over and over again. Now, a few weeks after this whole March business, on the 21st of April, about six weeks after the first protests, in an attempt, another attempt to calm shit down, the Assad government formally declared they would repeal the emergency law that had been in place since 1963. That's impressive. That that, uh, that impresses me. Okay. To put that into perspective, that's the year the Beatles' first album came out. Damn. Love Me Do and I Want to Hold Your Hand came out in the year that <laughs> emergency law Sorry. was decreed. Probably that's why it was decreed in Syria. I think... <laughs> was before Nobody listens to this. Nobody. The, the, Cut their the hair. The party heard that and went, holy shit, we can't let the kids listen to that. We got locked that out. <laughs> and he was, uh, yeah, he was going to overturn this. I don't think initially he declared when, but he was like, oh, we're going to do it. Don't, don't ask me when. Like, soon. <laughs> really soon. Details, Look, we- details. I'm a big picture kind of guy. 
They've been sort of announcing that they were going to do this, though, for about 20 years, the Assad. Yes. I'll do it. <laughs> I'll do it. Yeah. But, you know, they quoted Augustus, make haste slowly. <laughs> and said, He's look, it worked for Augustus. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was his. It was, it was his country. He owned for that a, shit. That's right. A long time. He owned yeah. everything. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this old adage that foreign conspiracies are involved when dictators feel unsafe, he was still selling that. Um, but again, as I pointed out in the last episode, it is true that Damascus, Syria, had been attacked uh, over the previous decades by Israeli agents, Saddam's agents, Turkish right-wing agents. There had been Sunni insurrectionists, the Muslim Brotherhood in uh, uh, Hama back in the early 80s. So, look, there had been lots of troubles involving lots of other countries, some directly or indirectly supported, no doubt, by the US and the British and the French, uh, and maybe even the Russians at various stages, uh, although they they were usually supportive of the Assads, as we've explained. So... um, You know, he, he he's still trying to sell this foreign conspiracies line, even though it probably had more to do with genuine domestic uh, disturbances yeah. at that Not particular improbable. stage. Right. Now, according to Reese Ehrlich, who's a Peabody award-winning American journalist who spent a lot of time in Syria uh, and has written a really great book, one of the books that I've been reading and using as my guide. He's uh, spent a lot of time, lived there, knows a lot of people there, understands the area well. Um, Many people at this stage, early 2011, many people in Syria did believe that Western powers Mm -hmm. were once again, seeking to divide and rule Syria. So it wasn't just Assad who was trying to sell this. A lot of people on the ground believed it was true. Again, because they've got a long history of having seen this stuff be true. I've seen it. My parents have seen it. My grandparents have seen it. So here's the thing. Like in the West, when somebody like Assad stands up and says, oh, foreign conspiracies, Western media and Western governments go, oh, you fucker, that's ridiculous. What? That's no. What? No. Why Why would you even say that? It's crazy talk. And I I think on general, the Western public goes, yeah, what are you talking about? We would never do that. Like like, my politicians said that we're not doing it. The average American wouldn't do it. When we say oh, we wouldn't do that, we're semi we're semi accurate, but it's not us doing it. Yeah, it's just the people that you voted for that are doing exactly. it. Exactly. Or the we don't know. Yeah. CIA that they put into power. Right. Um Now uh the, the, the people, according again to Reese Ehrlich, the people uh, in Syria that he met with during this period believed that the rebels that was starting to form at the time, wanted to in, impose a, a, an intolerant Sunni regime and that mm-hmm. Assad was protecting the religious minorities, as I said in the last episode. It was it was their worst fear coming true, and he's protecting them from that. Makes yeah. total sense. Yeah. Yeah. As his family has done for 40-odd years at this mm-hmm. point. Uh, according to one 79-year-old Alawite guy that Reese interviewed, if something happens to Dr. Bashar, everyone here will fight. If he is overthrown, it will go back to the days of the French with people fighting each other. 
Yeah, and that's not a crazy theory. That shit actually happened when France was running the place, trying to let it go, but yet at the same time, not you know trying not to let it go. So that, again, this is a precedent. This is what this guy knows because he either heard it or he was there if he's 79 years old. But it's true. It's what happened, and they're afraid to return to that. Why wouldn't they be? Mm. Now, it didn't take long, of course, though, for foreign governments to seize the chance to either replace Assad or support him, depending on where their strategic interests lay. Now, Assad, let's remember, has two friends in particular that help him stay in power. The Hezbollah in Lebanon that he's, that his family has supported for decades and the Islamic Republic of Iran. Okay. We've, talked, we've talked about both of those, particularly in relation to uh, the Lebanese civil war. The Hezbollah, uh, just to remind everyone, is, is the Shia militant group based in Lebanon. Uh, supported by Iran and also supported uh, during the Lebanese Civil War, eventually by uh, Hafez al-Assad. There is still obviously a going thing. And Lebanon, of course, is on the border of Syria. Um, Now, if if Israelis need peace in Lebanon, they need Assad. Okay. Now... Just you mentioned we mentioned the Israelis, I think, in the last episode. One of the interesting things here is that it, it, it looks like, at least in the early stages of the civil war, the Israelis wanted to support Assad. Mm. Bit of the better the devil you know kind of a theory here, <laughs> right? We've been dealing with the Assads for forty odd years. We kind of know how to deal with the Assads. If someone else is in control, fuck, who knows what's going to happen? Over. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Syria is the Arab gate, though, through which Iran can walk. Uh, I mean, if Iran takes control of Syria, that's bad for the Sunnis. It's also mm-hmm. bad for the Israelis. Um, uh, so, you know, there's a, a very tight relationship between the powers in this region, uh, and there's been a certain amount of stability there for a long time. And I think it's... Initially, a number of the players were looking at Syria thinking, well, we may not like the Assads, but we don't necessarily want to see them gone because we don't know who's going to uh, turn up in their place. It can always get worse. Yeah. Now, by the end of April, the death toll of demonstrators was in the 300s. So from let's remember it started early March. So March, within yeah. within two months, two months. three hundred dead, which, looking back on it, was very little. Was very low. Good number three hundred. Yeah. I could have been happy to keep it at three hundred, absolutely. As opposed to the uh, where it is today, in the hundreds of thousands. Um, but uh, one former minister at the time produced on Syrian television copies of checks for $300,000 supposedly signed by Prince Turki bin Abdulaziz, the former Saudi intelligence head and Mm -hmm. uh, somebody who'd once been on very good terms with bin Laden and the brother of King Abdullah. Uh, So this guy on television claimed that these checks were given to Lebanese political figures to 
instill unrest in Syria. Ooh. Prince Turkey, of course, as you would imagine, said the checks were false. But already evidence is either being manufactured or is legitimately turning up. Right. Tying foreign governments to um, creating political unrest in Syria. This is within two months of the protests breaking out. Jeez. Because we've been living with this for so long, we for, we you know you forget because you can't keep up with the news every day. Just how long it's been going on and all the horrible things, and it's been growing, but it's been in some ways it's been growing slowly. And so you just, if you stop and think about how big it is now and everything that's happened, it is actually quite staggering. But a bunch of teenagers spraying graffiti, it might have been something else that started this. I think we've covered that before, but. That's just how this thing got started. And it's just staggering how little events can just snowball out of all control. And you have to put this in context, too, of everything else that was going on in the world at the time. So this is early 2011. So let's let's think about everything else that's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still major strife in Iraq that's been going on then for right. sort of seven years uh, the U.S. is still trying to bed down things in Afghanistan. Um, oh, they're still looking for bin Laden at this point. Um, uh, you have the Arab Spring breaking out all over the Middle East. It's happening in Tunisia. It's happening in Egypt. It's happening all over. Um, and Libya is go- it's going on in Libya, um, where NATO is about to get very heavily involved. Uh, we're only a couple of years after the GFC happened, the fucking meltdown of the global right. economy, the U.S. is still dealing. Well, all countries are dealing with that, but particularly the U.S. Um, there's the WikiLeaks leaks that are hitting. I think the 2010, yeah, yeah the black yep. copper stuff that um, Bra- then Bradley Manning, now Chelsea Manning, was arrested and thrown in prison for, just got released a couple of weeks ago after seven years. Yeah, basically seven years in solitary confinement, most of it. Um, yeah. So there was a lot of shit going on. So, you know, some protests, a couple of hundred people dead in Syria. Didn't get a lot of attention, I think, at right. the time. I I've, There's a great book um, by the journalist of The Independent, sort of a, 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 what would you call it when you mash everything together? Compendium? No. Anyway, all of the articles written by... Uh-huh. Compilation's a good word, yeah. By the independence journalists, um, guys who I have time for, uh, Robert Fisk and Patrick Cockburn, those sorts of guys who have lived and worked in Damascus and around the Middle East for decades reporting on what's going on there. I've got a compilation of their uh, articles uh, month by month, day by day, basically, as they publish them over the the 2011 period. It's interesting to go back and read them from the beginning about what's going on over there. Initially, they're getting reports. They're not there, so they're getting reports by telephone. They're ringing their contacts. They're talking to them what's happening. Uh, they're seeing stuff on Syrian TV and Al Jazeera and trying to read between the lines. And then eventually they get there and they're reporting on the ground. Fisk was in Damascus when uh, the rallies were happening a bit later on in the year. Um, and it's interesting just to see how it plays out and also interesting <coughs> to read Fisk and Cockburn and these guys already in March and April saying, if this does blow out and become a full sectarian war and other interests get involved, this is going to be 
absolute fucking chaos and there's going to be just it's going to be the worst thing that's happened in the 21st century they could see it happening they're like and you know Fisk saying I hope to God you know I don't like Assad but I hope to God Assad fucking manages to either resign uh, and and fall on his sword to shut this down or gets control of it and shuts it down because if doesn't this is gonna. This is gonna be really, really fucking bad, and that's very early on. You know, he was he was prophetic. Wow! And then in late April, something terrible happened in the small Syrian town of Tel Kalach. I I got a little information on that. The Syrian government said that they were going in to uh, target terrorist groups. Um, but of course, the Syrian opposition called it a crackdown against pro-democracy protesters. <clears throat> but um, yeah, so they, they entered the town of the borders on Lebanon and uh, there were reports of the military massacre, uh, mass uh, killing. Should I can't say the word now? It's, it's hour two here. Uh, killing members of the Syrian opposition. And the reports were coming out because those who had survived this, the civilians, were fleeing over the Kabir River into Lebanon, telling of uh, just people without arms, without who were not, who were not fighting back, uh, just being shot by Syrian troops. And so this starts going on um, May 15th, and by, and by uh, yeah, uh, May 15th and by May 19th, the military is pretty much finished wiping out what opposition was there and they start to withdraw. So for like, for like four days, they just go on a killing spree and killing everyone they possibly can. Then they pull out, but some people do get out. They go into Lebanon and they tell their story. And of course there's a lot of details that are not known because of the way it unfolded. But again, uh, obviously the, the tension and the, the internal strife has been ramped up to a whole nother level. Yeah. About 40 people were massacred, civilians. Um, the army was just firing into groups of unarmed protesters. This torture, this panic. Thousands, of, up to 4,000 maybe, Syrian Sunnis made it to the safety of Lebanon. Uh, and yeah, they're describing people having their nails ripped out, their beards burned off. Uh, one guy told a reporter, we will never cease our struggle until we bring Assad down. For 40 years, we have not been able to breathe. Now, mm. the the men responsible for the massacre in Tel Khalakh were members of the Syrian's four, Syrian army's 4th Brigade, which is commanded by President Bashar al-Assad's little brother, Maher al-Assad. Uh, he is the Rifat to uh, Bashar. Right. What Rafat was to Hafez, Maher is to Bashar. Um, they had also been the same unit that was besieging Darar, where it all started. Now, Tel Kalakh lies only 20 miles due west of the city of Holmes, major city. It had a population of about 28,000. 10,000 of them uh, Muslims, the majority Alawites, uh, and, but even before the shooting started, apparently the military and a number of plain clothes gunmen were going through the town, separating Sunnis from Alawites, oh. telling the Alawites to stay in their houses and putting the Sunni out into the main areas. Now it's almost biblical. Well, it's all, it's you know it's the fucking 
pogroms. Uh, it's it's yeah. like the Nazis coming in and the night of the crystal knives, man. They're uh, separating. Is that what it was called? The night of the uh, crystal nut, crystal nut, crystal nut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they're separating the Jews, getting them out. Um, and then the the army uh, started firing into the crowds with tank mounted machine guns, firing into houses where people were in the houses, the, the Sunnis in the houses, uh, grabbing people, torturing them, etc., etc. Um, now the people there had been protesting against Assad, and up until this point had been protected because they had a fairly respected sheikh in the town, the town's mosque. But then armed men went in and arrested him. Right. And the Sunni, of course, uh, uh, you know, poured out into the streets in protest. According to one man, they were shouting, independence, give, give us freedom and independence. And then they, uh, the tanks just opened fire and um, people just started running everywhere. Um, yeah. Tanks completely surrounded the town. People were running into fields, babies screaming, people in wheelchairs trying to cross that small river that you mentioned before, the Nahar el-Kabir River, which borders Syria and Lebanon at this area, and they were trying to get into Lebanon. And from that point on, things just escalated. Can we pause for a minute while I go get a drink? Yes, please. Do I look lonely? I see the shadows on my face. People have told me I don't look the same. I'm just a little singing action. Here comes Cam. <laughs> you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> So by June, Syria's revolt against Assad had literally turned finally from peaceful protests into an out-and-out armed yeah. insurrection. I mean, they've got nothing to lose. If they're, if they're just going to protest with words and gather public gatherings and get shot at by tanks, I mean, they might as well step up their game because they have nothing to lose. And whilst it may have been hyperbole when Bashar was claiming in the early stages that it was an armed insurrection, within mm-hmm. three months, it was definitely an armed insurrection. Yeah, as you say, if you're going to get shot at anyway, right. you might as well shoot back. Um, now, it wasn't only the army uh, the people were fighting. It was also the Shabia. The Shabia translates as ghosts, the ghosts. Uh, These are Alawite militia who have been running around killing and torturing people who are resisting the the Assad regime. Uh, By the sounds of it... Well, yeah, and by the sounds of it, the Shabia, basically the Alawite mafia, um, they have a history... They've been around a while. They were created by Hafez as sort of... um, Know, Problem like, solvers. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, they're basically a bunch of burly guys with guns and trucks who run guns. They run drugs. They do all sorts of things, uh, and uh, they're basically his unofficial. I'm trying to think of a good analogy, but they're his his militia. That's they're his private right. militia, basically. Private that's army. Is, isn't yeah. drug running against the the teachings of Muhammad? I'm guessing. Yeah, probably. 
Okay, just checking. Yeah. Um, now, the Shabiha uh, in Latik- and Latakia were supposedly driving around in cars armed with machine guns, just firing at protesters, Damn. taking pot shots, uh, taking up sniper positions on rooftops and picking people off, just trying to literally create terror in the population yeah. to stop them from protesting. Yeah, stay in your house and shut up. Yeah. And they were being supported by detachments of the Mukabarat, the secret police in Syria who were running around doing the same sort of thing. So the next escalation point, I think, was the 4th of June, 2011. This is when the Syrian military launched an operation in the city of Jizr-Shugur. It's uh, up in the Idlib government, uh, northwestern Syria. Um, A town of about 40,000 residents. It's about 12 miles from the Turkish border. Now, it's halfway between Latakia, the port city, and Aleppo, which before the Civil War, Aleppo was actually the largest city in Syria. Uh, Not Damascus, the capital, but Aleppo, with a a population of around 2.1 million people. Now, Jizza, uh, coincidentally, uh, was also my nickname at high school. It was a conservative and predominantly Sunni uh, city that had a long history of unrest uh, against the government. It was the scene of a mass killing by the security forces under Hafez in 1980 that was kind of a forerunner to the more notorious Hamar massacre that happened in 82. Right. So there's tension going back decades um, in Jizr al-Shagur. Um, and, of course, you know, a lot of, lot of anger, a lot of tension, a lot of people there were killed uh, in 1980 by the Hazards. And so th- as soon as things started to bubble up again, they were um, one of the first places to really... Uh, yeah. take up arms in a, in a massive way against the Assads. If I can so, give a, yeah. I'm sorry. I was going to say, just give a little bit of information. On June 3rd, because they, they're about to launch their attack, the Syrian government shuts down most of Syria's internet, reducing about two-thirds of, of internet activities. On June 4th, the Syrian government, uh, uh, supposedly, as far as reports from... Um, but these are from the rebels, so you can never you never know it's true. Uh, the the military sends in uh, helicopter gunships to fire on protesters, killing at least ten of them. And then on June sixth, uh, suppose there's an ambush. Uh, uh, there's an attack on the soldiers themselves, and about 120 soldiers are killed. But of course, the Syrian news agency says whenever soldiers are killed, they were killed by armed gangs who were uh, who were uh, who launched an ambush. So when the soldiers do it. They're defending the government and they're fighting terrorists. When soldiers die, it's because uh, they're being ambushed by cowardly, uh, probably foreign terrorists. So there's a lot of there's a lot of clashing going on, but there's a lot of spinning and propaganda going on uh, during this event. Yeah. So yeah, the, there was a lot of security members killed in this uh, event, and. Um, This seems to be... The reason I think this is an inflection point is it seems to be when uh, a fairly significant number of the Syrian army started to defect to Mm. the rebels. Mm. 
or at least they claim to, whether or not they actually did, it started the process of the Syrian military defecting. Um, Now, uh, as you suggested, according to the government sources, what happened in Jizr is that uh, terrorist groups overran the town using government cars and wearing military uniforms, uh, filming themselves, causing general havoc and setting up several ambushes. Now, according to the opposition sources at the time, a mutiny inside of the army happened. And some of the victims were defectors shot by their colleagues because they refused to fire at the protesters, while others were killed by a mob in retaliation for attacks on civilians. But again, because there were no foreign journalists allowed in the country at this stage Mm -hmm. or able to get into the country, the reports were confused. Nobody really could tell what was going on. Sure. There were stories that army snipers were shooting at a crowd of civilians marching in a funeral. Uh, apparently, what seems to have happened, according to a couple of people who claim to be part of it, the people then stormed the military outpost and maybe a post office where the military were based. The people managed to get a truck loaded with dynamite to uh, get inside. They blew up the the surrounding walls and a wall to the building, got inside, and then murdered the entire battalion. Jeez. And, and, and yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, you No, I just wanted, you mentioned something. I it, I just wanted to mention this. Some of the soldiers were, were obviously feeling squeamish about shooting their own people, so they shot up in the air. But even, supposedly, even they were shot because they weren't carrying out the orders of shooting uh, the supposed terrorists. So even, you know, when they start to think about, hey, this isn't right, even those people paid the price just by shooting up in the air because they didn't want to do this anymore. But things have gotten so extreme at this point, you're either with us or you're against us. Mentality. Yeah, which, which, which you know, you know and I know from World War One and World War Two, very common. Yeah, absolutely. If you don't fire at the enemy, your generals will shoot you. Um, doesn't matter what what army you're on. Now, mass Absolutely. graves, mass mm-hmm. graves around Jizr Shagur were found uh, a few weeks later of soldiers. So yeah, apparently 120 soldiers were killed one way or another there. Now, but uh, one of the most important things that happened uh, at this point is the uh, coming out or the, the coming out. No, it wasn't coming. Out. No, <laughs> the the. Um, Video posted by Lieutenant Colonel Hussein Al-Hamoush, or the Hero Hamoush, as he was referred to relatively briefly in the media. He was the first high-ranking officer of the Syrian army to publicly defect. He uh, posted a video to YouTube claiming he and his entire battalion were sent to Jizr to attack the civilians, but defected and went to Turkey, went over the border to Turkey. And he denounced Assad's regime and called on his fellow soldiers to rebel and join the Free Syrian Army. Yeah, I was going to say, how does that help the civilians when you go, we're not going to kill you, but we're not going to defend you. We are leaving. We're going to keep walking until we get to Turkey. Good luck with everything. (laughs) Well, I think the plan was they were going to come back, but... uh, <clears throat> yeah, one battalion can't take on the rest of the army, so they needed That's to true. get some additional support. He was hoping that they'd be able to create a major insurrection uh, in the army, 
uh, or defection in the army. And mm-hmm. uh, in fact, that did start to happen. How end, however, right. uh, he ended up changing his story when he spoke to journalists yeah. and... Um, and his story became a little bit confused about when he actually defected, whether or not he yeah. was actually in Jizur Ashagur. Eventually, it seems he was sent by the Turks back to Syria. Ooh, he was awkward. drugged and sent back and uh, kind of disappeared. There were conflicting yeah. reports about his status a couple of years later. Some said he was still in prison. Others said he'd been tortured and murdered. He was, others said that uh, his body was one of those shown by the Syrian government of a bunch of people that had been tortured and murdered. He basically disappeared. But whether or not his story was accurate or not, it it led to this idea that major parts of the army were defecting, whether or not Mm -hmm. they were at that point in time is another issue. But what happened is it did start a broader revolt from inside Assad's forces. Wow. And I'd just like to make two points. One, I can't believe at that point you didn't play a some song about I'm going back home, whatever, I don't know. But two, yeah, supposedly uh, the hero told, uh, he was quoted before he disappeared as saying, I've been thinking about coming back since the 15th day of Ramadan, 15th August, but I was shocked to be used as a trade and how people begged money in my name and offered many promises, none of which was achieved. So I, I don't know if he was tricked by Turkey. I don't know if he was tricked and manipulated by Syria and Turkey or if he was just he realized it wasn't going to work and so he's trying to come up with an excuse but like you said we don't really know what happened but the idea that yes we can actually defect we can actually leave we don't have to listen to the orders to shoot our own people you know that message got out there and so I think people at that point maybe started thinking outside the box because it is going to happen and it's going to happen for real very quickly and to be cynical for a moment please do um, I love that <laughs> I mean, I love your tangents and I love your <coughs> cynicism. It's not necessary. I mean, it, it, maybe they had humanitarian thoughts in their mind. Maybe they started to see an opportunity. Okay, right. maybe this is our chance to overthrow the Assads and take power for ourselves. Mm. Uh, I'm sure that crossed people's minds. Um, yep, yeah, because how many them. coups? Oh my God, I lost count of the number of coups before Hafez. Between the, I guess, what between the late forties and they were ripe for another good coup. They needed a yeah, good. They were coup. overdue. They were overdue. Overdue for a coup. <laughs> uh, um. So yeah, the, uh, Al Jazeera not long after that aired footage of a junior Syrian officer calling upon his comrades to refuse to continue massacring civilians. He said he'd joined the army to fight the Israeli enemy but then found himself witnessing a massacre of his own people. Mm. And he said, After what we've seen from crimes in Daraa and all over Syria, I am unable to continue with the Syrian Arab army. I urge the army and I say, Is the army here to steal and protect the Assad family? I call upon all honourable officers to tell their soldiers about the real picture. Use your conscience. If you are not honourable, stay with Assad. And then on the 9th of, uh, 29th of July, suddenly, uh, sorry, fuck, let me start that again. On the 29th of July, 2011, Colonel Riyad al-Assad, no relation, 
and a group of uniformed officers formally announced the formation of the Free Syrian Army or the Syrian Free Army. Use it either way. Um, I like Syrian Free Army because its initials are then an SFA, as in sweet fuck all. Um, <laughs> we're the sweet fuck all. Thank you. Good night. Good name for a band. Um, they said their goal was to protect unarmed protesters and help to bring down the regime. He posted a video to uh, YouTube where he spoke alongside several other defectors. And YouTube's an interesting. I mean, this was very much... This war was fought uh, in large part on YouTube. A lot of footage, a lot of people getting their word out because obviously the media in Syria is controlled by the Syrian government. Al Al Jazeera was banned in Syria, so they couldn't even get their content to Al Jazeera. So it was posted by YouTube. And even though the internet was shut down, people were still able to get copies of it in other countries and see what was going on. Um, Most of the FSA was Sunni. But there were small numbers of Alawites, Druze, and Christian that were also defecting. Interesting. But, well, yeah, but, I mean, again, this is a Sunni-majority country, so you would expect the majority of the army to be Sunni. You would expect the majority of the defectors to be Sunni. Uh, But it's also easier, then, for Assad to position it as a sectarian war because the majority of the rebels are Sunni. Gotcha. Okay. Um, at this stage, thousands were fleeing into Lebanon and Turkey, and the estimates had risen to 1,200 civilians dead and 500 Syrian soldiers dead. So we've gone from 300 right. in early June to 1,200 by late July. Right, but even though you've only got relatively few deaths, even though it's expanded quickly, I mean the groundwork has already been laid. This is already personal. You've 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 had army um, soldiers shoot into civilians, as far as we know, unarmed, trying to flee. You've had uh, soldiers attacked, ambushed, maybe attacked by civilians with a truck full of bombs. I mean, this is now gone to a whole nother level. You just have to give it a little while for the amount of deaths to catch up to it. But yeah, this is no longer just some simple protest of uh, some teenagers and what what happened to them. The people are actually seeing an opportunity to strike out at Assad. And like we said before, they've got to be sick and tired of the last 40, 41 years, 40 years of of being oppressed. And it, it, the, the lid is off and they're they're just going to go for it and again they don't have much of a choice because they're being shot at in the first place although we have to keep in mind that some millions of the people perhaps even were protesting still at this point and and for a long time afterwards in support of the Assad government because they were in the minorities the religious minorities and they believed right. the Assads were protecting them against what would be all out bloodshed if the uh if certain elements of right. the Sunnis, anyway, were able to take power. So it wasn't all of the people that were turning sure. against Assad at this point. But if it's even if it's 1% and you videotape some stuff and you can put it on YouTube, it suddenly represents so much more than that, just in that 1%. And so, yeah, this, this whole thing, or at least in the areas that, that we're talking about here, these people are not willing to back down. They're either going to run away or they're going to fight because that's really their only two choices. And at this point, late July, early August, uh, 
NATO, uh, led predominantly by the French, got involved directly in bombing Libya. And that has consequences for the whole affair, but we're going to leave that to the next episode, episode 15. Listen to the wisdom of in an old Russian maxim. Though my pronunciation may give you difficulty, the maxim is dovayai no provayai. Trust but verify. <laughs>